Hey, welcome to our January 9th sermon here in service at Broadway Church. Just an announcement or two before we get started. Um, on Wednesday night, 7.30, January 19th, we'll be starting a class again in the Maple Room at Broadway uh, with Radu Pavel. Uh, he'll be teaching us. It's going to be a tremendous lesson on what is the gospel, how it applies to our lives, how it applies to the way we live and uh, what the end result of it, is all, of it is. And he'll be going through the book of Galatians to start. And uh, so I encourage you to come out. If you're not in the care group, what a great way to meet some, some people and connect with people in our church. And again, the other thing to announce is, again, just a big thank you for the generosity that you are showing to Broadway's ministries and different projects we've had. Of course, the Christmas project, we had a huge amount of money, over $40,000 raised for that. So thank you so much. And we appreciate your continued generosity to our general fund and our general budget to what we're doing here in ministry with our youth, our children, and our adults. So I am going on a series here, and I called it Life Lessons from Nature. Last week, I talked about the eagle and how God tells us to that when we trust in him and wait on him, we will be like an eagle hitting the thermals and just being able to rest there. There's a bit of work on our part is to get there, as we talked about. So that's one life lesson from nature. I thought it would be important to spend the majority of today's sermon on, on kind of why. <laughs> Where are we going with our life? Why would we need to take lessons from nature? Why does God give us lessons in this journey? If we become a Christian and then we just end up going to heaven, why do we need to have lessons? You know, can't we just get there automatically? That's, that's a belief some people have, that you, that you live this way, uh, you're born and you live, and then at the end of it all, you are either going to heaven or to hell. And there's different criteria for that. So I want to just address that. Where are we going? And then from that, we will see the importance of how God teaches us and why he teaches us from things uh, in nature. Before we get going, I want you to grab a piece of paper and a pen because I'm going to have you participate with me. Um, you're gonna, I'm going to ask you to draw some things, very basic. <laughs> There'll be a circle, a line, a couple little lines, a few words, a Venn diagram later on. And uh, so just grab that pen and uh, a paper and um, we'll, it's a way of taking a very few notes to get uh, to understand what we're talking about today. So to begin with, I want to talk about animals, um, just generally today. Animals in the Bible are metaphors and images that help us get to where we need to go. The Bible talks about 70 different types of animals. The Israelites classified animals not for a desire to ace their zoology exam in, in, in biology 12 or whatever, but it was a pragmatic need to answer some basic questions about animals. Can they be eaten? What ones can be eaten, not eaten? Do they pose a danger to people? Which ones harm crops? That was their criteria for having different ideas of animals in the nature. The biblical imagination participates in a universal tendency to equate certain animals with specific traits. Strong as a ox, go to the ant and learn happy as a blank in mud, a pig, sly like a fox. The early bird gets the worm. The list can go on on how we use animals to talk about life. The Genesis account lays out the moral implications of humanity's relationship to animals by establishing parallels to humanity's relationship with God. 
God delegates the dominion of animals to people, just as God is the people's Lord. People work for God by tending the garden, and the beasts, animals, work for people. So as reliable, non-complaining workers, livestocks provided metaphors for loyalty and trainability, but also for moral generalizations. In the Bible, cattle are an indicator of wealth. God owns cattle on a thousand hills. They're in dreams and poetry. A well-fed cow served as a metaphor of a wealthy people or a wealthy nation. Starving cows indicated lean years. The Bible talks about animals deserving rest and food and water. It said you must help an ox in trouble, even if it is your enemies. That's what the Bible says. Today it might be your enemy's tractor, you know, but that's cattle or everything. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath because any decent person would help or heal an animal on that day. And the long history of Israelite nomadic dependence on animals is at the forefront in the scriptures. They brought their domestic food source with them as they traveled around. And they used various parts for spiritual practice. The horn of the sheep was a ceremonial instrument, but also an oil container. Whole economies were based on wool. Today we have whole economies based on oil or forestry or manufacturing. Animals, those commodities were part of the economics of the Israelite times. The purity of wool served as a metaphor for sinlessness. Most of all, sheep served as simple models for us human beings. People, like sheep, are sociable, lost without a herd to belong to. We need to be with people. We need to have gangs, even. People are creatures of habit. People are easily led astray, just like sheep. Sheep were defenseless against marauding wolves and desperately in need of a shepherd. The Bible says you and I, like sheep, have gone astray. So when we follow God's path, we become his sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. What a powerful metaphor. In contrast, in the Bible, we have goats. At the judgment, the sheep go with God, and the goats go into hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. What's that about? Well, goats are seen as savvy, self-reliant, an image of the worldly wise. Goats are those who do not think they need God. The headbutting was typical of goats, and it served as an image of political clashes. So there's the sheep and the goats. So the purpose of the lessons in using animals is where is God taking us? What is the goal? What is the complete story of you and I, but more importantly, the complete story of the human race? What do people think you and I believe? How does life work? What happens at the end? So I want to give us some pictures. This is where your drawing comes in. I want you to just draw like the earth, a start line. And it's a beautiful, it's also a tragic place. And this is where you and I start our lives. Then we draw a line, it comes to an end. So the line goes, we live our lives, sometimes great, sometimes sad. We come to an end. What people believe is we're trying to be good sometimes, and we sometimes fall, and we're sometimes good. Sometimes uh, we're a sheep, sometimes we're a goat. And we hope to have more stuff on the good side, on the high side of the line, rather than the bottom, the bad. And then at the end of it all, God closes the curtains on history, and based off how good you've been, or how bad you've been, or whether you hold to correct ideas and beliefs about Jesus, that will determine your destiny. And it's one of two places. So at the end of the line, you want to write heaven or hell. That's what our culture believes. 
that's what some Christians believe, and, and I want to spend some time correcting that story. Heaven is in, our, is in our cultural imaginations. We see them, and hell, we see them as non-physical places. Heaven is clouds and harps and pearly gates and Peter waiting for us and singing in the presence of God. And hell is a subterranean torture chamber of some sort. This is what some people think. And some Christians believe this. We want to stop this. The main problem is this story of just living your life and trying to be good and bad, and that determines where you go, and that is not in the Bible. And Jesus' life and teachings do not teach this at all. This story of beginning and trying to be good and bad and hope it all works for the good, that's, that's not even a quarter truth. So we're going to think through on how to reframe this gospel story that you and I are jumping into. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says this. And it's the good news of the Messiah links you up to a story that has already started. It started way before you were born. The good news of Jesus does not start with Jesus. We are jumping into a river that has been flowing for thousands of years. And Isaiah says, prepare the way of the Lord. So there's lots of stuff going on before Jesus appears. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Israel's story, of a promise that the God of Israel would come to visit the earth and rescue his people. Verse 14, John the Baptist was put in prison and Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time has come. Listen up. Come, come. Jesus says, the time has come. Listen up. This is what everyone's been waiting for, the culmination of all the prophecies in the scriptures. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, Jesus says. Believe the good news. So the good news, the gospel is about repenting. So what is the good news? The kingdom of God is here. This is the time for you and I to repent and believe and have Jesus in our line of history. In Jesus' mind, the story of the Bible and who he is and what he's here to do and the gospel, what it's about, the gospel is not about us going somewhere when we die. It's so much more than when, where we end up when we die. It's about something God is doing now. This is the good news. The kingdom of God has arrived. So this idea of the line here, is a me-centered story. It's about me, what I'm doing, good or bad, and then God is just the one at the end who assigns me a role at the end of the story. That's not the gospel or the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about what God has been doing, has done in Jesus, and what he continues to do. This idea of earth and our line and then the ending is just a story about me and my behaviors, whether I'm good or bad or have the right information of Jesus. The story of the Bible is not about my behavior as the focus. It is about God's activity and purpose and what God is doing in our world through Jesus. That is the good news for our world. And we're going to use animals. <laughs> we're going to use animals to help us grow in this understanding. The good news is so good that we must repent. The good news is not about getting rich or never suffering and never struggling. God's kingdom, his reign, and his rule over the world has arrived in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. The kingdom of God has come to earth. So Jesus is here to resolve a problem. That's what we see. And he's going to resolve this problem through what is described in the rest of the pages of Mark, as, as well as in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. This is the good news. 
The kingdom of God is not somewhere you go to at the end of your life. It is something that has arrived in Jesus. This is the true story. In the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So you can draw a couple little circles again. We've got heaven and we've got earth. Heaven is God's space. Earth is our space. We can understand our space really well. We live here on earth. There are trees, rivers, mountains. But God's space is more difficult. So we have images in the Bible trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So now have your two circles, kingdom of God and earth. They are two very different types of spaces. They're different in, the, in their nature. In the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as different dimensions that can overlap in the, in the same exact space. And that's what it means. The kingdom of God has now arrived on earth. Take, you know, so there's a bit of a Venn diagram there. We talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. The kingdom of God is now, not just at the end. The union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How heaven and earth were once united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together again. So we, so we go back to the beginning where heaven and earth are completely overlapping in Genesis. This is what the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation. Their circles were together, heaven <laughs> the presence of God and earth. And humans partner in, with God in this, building a flourishing, beautiful world. That's what it describes in, in Genesis. But as humans, now we go to Genesis 3, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out. We wanted to create a world apart from Him. So now we have two spaces, the presence of God here, heaven, the kingdom of God, and then the earth, us. But Jesus says it's, he's now overlapping them. The Bible actually uses a lot of different words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. But these spaces overlap now that the kingdom of God is here. So in the, in the Bible world, we have this idea of temple. You experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth overlap. The presence of God was in the temple. There are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. So as they traveled around, they took the temple with them. And the other one was this massive building in the first temple built by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And so this is designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden, you know, the, the Garden of Eden, the beautiful creation. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. So God's space is full of His presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But the human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and actually in conflict with each other? Well, this was resolved through animal sacrifices. This is part of the role of animals in the Bible, specifically um, the sheep. The idea is this, animal sacrifices, somehow it's a mystery. God sees it this way. The animal sacrifice absorbed the sin 
of the people. The animal died in your place and it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence in the Holy of Holies. That was where God's presence was. So if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be, I might be able to be in God's presence. It was through the sacrifice, but it wasn't like every day, 24-7. We have to keep going in the story and we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus, John chapter 1, and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling means he set up a tabernacle among us. The presence of God is in Jesus. So the kingdom of God is here in Jesus. So what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. Jesus is here on earth. He's not just staying in the safe, sinless, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's, basic creating, he's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence. That's his life and ministry. He's doing it in the middle of this world of sin and death. He came and tabernacled here, set up the temple. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he even told his followers, and he tells us to pray regularly that God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we begin to have the overlap of the kingdom of God, God's space and our space. A lot of people were threatened by Jesus. The religious leaders and even political leaders were worried that they would follow him instead of the Jewish leaders or the political leaders. But most importantly, he was he claimed to forgive sin, and the Jewish leader said this to Jesus, you are a mere man, and you're claiming to be God, to be God's presence, and so they wanted him killed for blasphemy. So we need to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story, where John the Baptist saw Jesus, and he said, behold, this is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about being the temple sacrifice. So the cross, the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. The kingdom of God is here. So we come to the future then. And it's when heaven comes to the earth. Lots of questions about how this works at the end of the age. But this is really great. It's a big question in people's mind is then what happens when I die? Do I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? That's what people think and that's not how it works. The focus in the Bible is on how heaven and earth are being re reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, which talks about the end times, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of, Eden, of Garden of Eden. And it's now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a complete overlap. God's space and human space is completely connected once again. The story of the Bible is about how heaven and earth got ripped apart and this was not God's will and Jesus comes to bring us back together. 
God wants to partner and rule his good world together with us, image bearers, image bearers of, the, of God. Something went wrong inside the human being, and thus the story of forgiveness and cleansing and renewal needs to take place. We have this urge still to not trust God's definition of good and evil. We prefer to seize autonomy, independence, and define good and evil as we see fit, like a goat. God made heaven and earth, and it is very good. There is no mention in the first pages of creation that God created hell. It is not there in the creation story. It's not there at the beginning of the story in page one. It comes into the story later. And let's go to Jesus' own brother, James. He says this in chapter 3, verse 6 of his book. The power of the tongue. It can both bless and praise God, but also gossip and tear down character of people and to speak ill of others. And James says this, when humans do this, their tongues are lit on fire by hell. So hell is not just something at the end of the game. It is a present reality now, just like the kingdom of God is. And it's on earth. Jesus said, I will build my church on earth and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a sense of there's the power of hell here now. And we can unleash it on ourselves and on others. We can destroy people and relationships with it. That's what James is getting at. And God wants to heal this world and defeat sin and evil and hell. God loves his good world and his creation. And so Jesus comes on the scene and heaven is here to invade earth and to confront evil, sin, and hell. Heaven begins to overlap with earth, with the earth. His kingdom is coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that it is in heaven. We need to remember that and repeat it. This is good news. Jesus has come to break evil and destroy it. We want God to end all evil. That's what every normal human being would want. We want people to behave properly. We would love there to be no greed and corruption, sex trafficking, you name the evil. We would like to see it gone. But I think James is getting at all these things start as flickers of fire in the human heart. And God's plan is for Jesus to come into people's lives and direct them. He begin to take away lust and anger and hatred and greed and idolatry from the human heart. That's where he works in the heart. This is a process of his spirit in us. God does not force things on us. The enemy is the devil. Jesus is a surgeon. He does a work in our hearts so that we want to and do good. The great physician, Jesus comes, lives a hell-free existence. No sin in his life. And he calls out the hypocrisy of people and the sin in people. And he allows it to kill him. This is the cross. In Jesus, the whole train wreck of human history has been redeemed and hell will not get the last word. The resurrection is the moment of the new life beginning where we get into the presence of God through Jesus. So he says, this is the good news, repent. Believe this, God has defeated hell at the cross. Thy kingdom come. How does it end? The last page of the Bible, that's where we read about it. Where and what is hell in the last page of the Bible? What's it talk about? C.S. Lewis says this, Hell is God's monument to human dignity and choice. When someone refuses to be healed by the great physician, God will honor that. If they don't want to trust in him, God will honor that. What God will not do 
is to allow hell to continue ruining his good creation. It will come to an end. So the end of it all has heaven and earth back together fully. And hell is outside the city. So your diagram can be heaven and earth overlapping and hell outside the city. It is God's mercy to contain human evil and not let it ravage the world. And in the new heaven and earth, hell is not where God is. God's presence is not there. That's what it means. God is not there. No presence of God. That's hell. This is good news. Jesus has defeated the devil. He's defeated evil and hell, and he's committed to continue defeating evil and hell. This is what is known as the Christus Victor model of the atonement, about what actually happened on the cross. The devil was defeated. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. John says, Dear children, do not anyone lead you astray. Don't be a sheep. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Whoever does what is right is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. So we're righteous because he is, and his spirit is in us. Whoever does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the powerful verse here, the reason the Son of God appeared, that he tabernacled here, was to destroy the devil's work. The devil's work has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan is spoken of in the Bible as the god of this age or the god of this world. He's described as the ruler of the power of the air. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against demonic forces now on earth. God is the ultimate Lord and ruler over all creation. Satan is seen in the scriptures as the functional Lord of earth at the present time. When Jesus was in the desert, the devil tempted him. And one of the temptations was for Jesus to accept all the kingdoms of the world from Satan if he would bow down and worship Satan. Gregory Boyd has a tremendous article on this, on the atonement. It says this, Jesus was about vanquishing this empire, taking back the world from Satan and restoring it back to its rightful guardian, humans. It was crazy for Satan to think Jesus would do this because Jesus ultimately knew he was the ultimate Lord of all the kingdoms. The first messianic prophecy in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. A descendant of Eve, it says, would, would crush, crush the head of the serpent who originally deceived humanity into joining the rebellion. The cross is victory over Satan. Satan has been crushed. So our life on the line is about salvation, continued salvation, continued rescuing. It doesn't just about at the end of our life. The, the devil has been defeated. Here's what it says about us and the devil. We were held captive to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. It says we have been set free from the present evil age that the devil rules, Galatians 1.4. Colossians 1.12-13 says we are rescued from the powers of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is Christus' victor atonement, defeating the devil. Now this is the challenging story that we're presenting here, but it's a compelling story. People need, need this. We need the kingdom of God now, not just at the end. Our story, your story, is part of the bigger story. We have resources in Christ. Remember last week, have you not heard? Do you not know? That's how that helps us in our line of life. We are sheep who need each other. This is the best herd or gang or team to belong to. God's flock, get in on it. We stay upright in our lives because of other people sharing our burden. Other people pray for us. We connect, we personalize our physical connection with people. 
We, sh we share our sufferings. We let other people in and it inspires them. We inspire each other to trust God more as we get up close and personal with others. We connect to life with others and what is going on. We are sheep <laughs> helping other sheep with the good shepherd as our leader. That's the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in this earth. We are in the meantime stage of the momentum of the kingdom coming to earth. We are not fully in the presence of God at this time. This fully presence of God is described as happening in the new earth and heaven when there's complete overlap. It's in Revelation chapter 1, 21. It says, God himself will be with us. On this earth, you and I are in the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus, who is the perfect human being. But we have the reality of knowing that we are fully forgiven now and righteous now in his sight without spot or blemish. Pure wool. Our sins were scarlet, but now because of the cross, we are pure white wool. In the meantime, we look through a glass darkly. We have limited capacity to fully comprehend all that God has in store for those who love him. We have a deposit of the Holy Spirit, and it guarantees better things to come at the end. And it starts now. It's just not about when we die. We will see him as he really is. Beautiful. He will no longer be distorted by our fears, our idolatrous reductions of who he really is, and all the myriad of things that sin has done to mar his true nature from us. And when we approach death's door and our time is up, we must not hesitate or be unsure or uncertain or ashamed. We are His. We are without blemish. We will run to Him. You know what? He will run to us. It'll be like the greeting at the airport where both parties are running toward each other for a long, weighted, extended hug. And He will say to you, My son, my precious son, my daughter, my precious daughter, how I have longed for this day. We had a relationship with God on earth, but it will be different when we get in his presence. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. John said this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice saying, Now the dwelling of God is with humankind. He is tabernacled with us, and God will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the full story. It's not just about being born, trying to be good more than bad, and at the end, maybe you go to heaven if you're good enough, and you go to hell if you're too bad. That's not the story at all. The story is now we can be unashamed. Now we can have power. Now we can know our sins are forgiven, and it changes us. It changes how we treat others. It challenges us to continue to trust God. Not to be like Adam and Eve at the beginning where they didn't trust God. So let's continue to be sheep. Let's help each other not go astray. Let's know that Jesus is in our lives and he will guide and direct us. And he will not lose anyone who is in his hand. That's the beauty of the story. That's the full story. And that's why God gives us lessons to complete the story. And he gives us lessons from nature. So that's what we're going to cover in the next few weeks. How God uses the animal world to direct us and guide us. We all like sheep. That's the start of the story. We all like the animal sheep have gone astray. 
We've each gone our own way. And when we do that, we destroy ourselves and we destroy others. But God, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for us, died for us, rose from the dead, He gives us new life. And now there's an overlap of the kingdom of God on this earth in our lives. Have you not heard? Do you not know? This is the beautiful truth of the good news of the gospel. Amen.